you will, turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 5. We'll read, um, have one verse that we're going to concentrate on. We'll read a couple of the verses uh, before it. Uh, Romans, to me, is uh, Paul's greatest um, writing. Uh, the, the first section of Romans deals a lot with um, justification. Um, the, the second portion of Romans begins, it deals with what happens in our lives and how we want to live and how it is a freeing of the Holy Spirit in our lives that cause us to want to live to be like Jesus. And so Romans chapter 5, to me, one of the greatest verses uh, in all of Scripture. We'll read a couple of verses before it, and then we'll concentrate it on, on that one verse, verse number, number 8, here in just a few minutes. But isn't it a beautiful thing in our lives when we experience God's grace and God's peace to the extent that even in tribulations we are able to be joyous and know that there's a hope of glory behind us, in front of us. Now, how do we live this way? How do we live joyously in tribulation and trouble when, when we know, and how do we know that this joy is not someday going to dissolve into a delusion, that this is all just a pipe dream? And that what we're following and what we have said that we've placed our faith in is not genuine. The answer is these great benefits that we feel and that we have, they're grounded in God's great abundant love for us. Verse number 5 here in, Roma, in Romans chapter 5 tells us, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about that word love there that, that, God, that uh, Paul is using there in his letter to the Roman church. That word love is translated from the Greek. It is the word agape love. It's a word that you've heard preachers give an explanation of many times from a pulpit. It means that it is a love that is absolutely unconditional that God gives to us. There is a great theologian from the past whose name is Bishop Nigren, and he tells us when we realize that he never uses, that Paul never uses agape to express man's love to God. We shall not think that it is of man's love that Paul speaks in these verses. Agape, the love which God showed us in Christ, is for Paul so tremendous a fact that he regularly refrains from using the same word to express our love to God. Our love to God is in no comparison with the love that God has for us. And so God's love has been poured out into our heart. It means that it never runs out. God's love for us will never run out. The idea in the Greek is that God's love God's love has been, and God's love continues to be poured out in our hearts. This is a, a picture of a lavish love, a love that we can't understand, a love that no, no matter how much love someone has poured out into our hearts and into our lives during, during the time that we're here, no matter how much they have invested in us 
and given to us, it never will compare to the lavishness of, of the love that God pours out on us. There's another old commentator um, who uses the Latin word abundant, abundant, easy for y'all to listen to, abundantissimi. It means that our hearts have been filled to overflowing with divine affection. Our hearts are filled to the point there was so much love that that love overflows out of our hearts. So Paul here uh, says that it is the Holy Spirit who personally represents God's love in our heart. It's the Holy Spirit who is pouring that love into our hearts continuously. And Paul gives an exposition here in these verses of God's love for us. It's beyond the range of what we can comprehend as humans. And so realizing this, the Apostle Paul attempts to help us by giving further comment on what Christ did. Verses 6 through 8 say this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many of you remember the daily devotion, the, the, the devotion, and I, I don't know if it's still in print, but there was a devotion called Daily Bread. Any of you remember that devotion, Daily Bread? Maybe it's still in print. I know most of us read open windows, but there's an old devotion called Daily Bread, and it had this story that I thought, I thought fit so well. It said, during the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful preacher of the gospel by the name of Peter Miller. He lived near a fellow who hated him intensely for his Christian life and testimony. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed his followers. One day, the unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. When Peter Miller found out about this, he set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before General George Washington. General Washington listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend, he's not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. Washington was astounded by this and said, You have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller raced to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived right before the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by wa watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. Peter Miller performed a noble act and he will be eternally commended. But think about this. Think about the act that Jesus committed on our behalf. Jesus not only obtained our pardon, he could have stopped there. He could have just obtained our pardon, but not only did he bring a pardon for us, what did he do? 
He went and was executed and took our place for our sins. So Paul says here and talks about what a great lavish love this is. Look at the four words that Paul uses to describe us. In verse number 6, he uses the words weak and ungodly. In verse number 8, he calls us sinners. And then on in verse number 10, he will call us enemies. When he does that, he tells us that God's love was totally unmotivated by anything in any one of us. He says there was nothing good in us that could make God want to love us. But this love is unmerited. It's not dependent on us. And it's never going to change. We are lavish with a love that lies in God alone. And God's love is the permanent possession of the child of God. Paul will go on later in Romans to, to hammer this home when he says in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword for I am sure that neither light, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let's concentrate here on verse number 8 for just a few minutes and look at Paul's, how he breaks this verse down. And first of all, he says this, that God's love is declared to us. Now, how did God prove his love to us? How did God prove his love to us? Everything in nature is at the disposal of God. Everything in nature is at the disposal of God. God could have rolled back the sky, and he could have opened up heaven, and he could have shown us the great love that he had for us. He could have used a trumpet to herald um, he could have done, he could have spoken in a booming voice. Everything is at his disposal. But here's what Paul says in Galatians 4 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God had a methodical preparation for what he was doing here. God is detailed and God is orderly. God had a plan in place. It says when the fullness of time had come, God's plan was in place. Think about this. Think about God's plan as we follow it all the way through the Old Testament. God, the, these people of his that he chose to be his possession, they were enslaved by the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Persians, and then the Romans. But think about what God was doing during all of these events, God had raised up a Greek nation. Now, what were the Greeks most famous for? The Greeks are most famous for when they, when, when they would capture a place and when they would possess that place, they made everyone there in that place learn their language. The Greek language was known in all of the world at this point in time. Now, Here's why it was known. It was known that so when the gospel was going to be spread, it could be spread everywhere around the world without a language barrier. God had a plan in place. God raised up a Roman empire. That Roman empire was most famous for its road system, a road system that had 
50,000 miles across the world. He rose up that Roman Empire and allowed them to build that great road system so that the gospel could be taken from country to country and, and could move all around the world and be spread easily. God, Paul says here that there was a fullness of time. It was God's time. God knew that people were waiting on this message and God had a plan in place for them. Each of us, every single one of us here this morning has a great longing to be loved. We want to be loved by other people. And God loves us so much that he demonstrated his own love toward us by sending his son to take the place of our sins. Now, every one of us here this morning has a distinct DNA. Every single one of us, no, no two people, had the exact same DNA. None of us have the exact same fingerprints. We are all individuals. I am an expert on this because Bree watches ID, the, the, this ID channel all day long, and I hear all about DNA evidence and fingerprints and all these things, and sometimes I'm sitting there wondering, what is she plotting? <laughs> What's going on in her mind that we watch this all the time? But each one of us is in the, we are we are we're individually loved by the Lord. And though we're individually loved, is there one of us that's loved by the Lord more than any of the other of us? Is there anybody in this choir that you could look around you and say, Well, the Lord loves me more than he loves them? No. Y'all stop. Some of y'all were looking out the corner of your eye. Not a one of us can say that there's any other person that the Lord loves more than us. Now, the love that we voluntarily return to the Lord is indescribably valuable to Him. Why is it important that we return love to God? Because He created us for one specific reason, to bring glory to Him and to have fellowship with Him. When, when nature, when everything was perfect in creation, when God's plan was first put in place, it describes a situation where God came in the cool of the evening every day and he had fellowship with those humans he had created, Adam and Eve. And the way that we give our love back to him is to make sure that every day of our lives we're spending some time returning that love to God by giving him what his heart desires and that's having fellowship and communion with him. Now, so we see that he created us that way and he declared his love for us and then we see God's love declared but then we see God's love is astonishing. The astonishing thing about God's love is that he didn't express it while we were perfect or deserving. It was not given to us while we were perfect or deserving. Will we ever be perfect in this life that we live? There ever be a moment? There were very few times in my academic career where I ever saw that you know, at the top of the page, you know when you make a perfect paper, they write in real big red letters 100A+. And you, and you, you say, hey, I was perfect on this test. 
there were very few times in this life, in my academic career, where I was ever able to bring one of those papers home and put it on the refrigerator and for everybody to look and see. My boys got that same trait. Now, in God's, in God's economy, in God's testing, and in God's, are there ever times where I can say I went through a situation and I did everything perfectly? No. Is there ever going to be a moment in any of our lives where we could say, I am absolutely right now at this point in time, I am 100% deserving of what God has given me. Never. Not one of us who are sitting here. But here's what's so astonishing about God's love. It says He loved us while we were yet what? Sinners. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Is there anyone here in this congregation who can say that there was there, that that I was there was a point in my life where I wasn't a sinner? No. Go back. Let's look here and connect. Look at me. If you have your Bible open, look at me with verses seven and and, and connect it to verse number eight. It says this. It says, "For one will scarcely die for a righteous person." Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But these two words right here. These two words change everything. But God. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those two words make all the difference in our lives. Jesus came to earth so that we could go to heaven. Jesus was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. Has there ever been a moment in your Christian experience, in your Christian journey, in your walk with life, in your walk with the Lord through this life, has there ever been a moment where you did something where God said, okay, at this moment I'm going to forsake you. I'm going to leave you and I'm going to forsake you and I'm going to leave you here in this situation and you're just going to have to deal with it by yourself. You're going to have to deal with this heartache. You're going to have to deal with this tribulation. You're going to have to deal with this trial. You're going to have to deal with it by yourself. Jesus was forsaken for the reason that you and I will never once be forsaken in our experience with Him. And then look at this. God's love is immeasurable. Paul ends this verse by saying this. Christ died for us. Let those words sink in for just a moment. Christ died for us. Whose death, whose death did Christ die? Whose death did Christ die? He died our death. Whose life are we now living? Whose? We're living Christ's life now. Jesus Christ died our death so that we could live his life. What's the verse that we know so well? For God so loved the world that he gave that whosoever believeth in him 
Y'all did good. Y'all had the same second grade teacher I had. Think about the price he paid. Was he deserving of any of the price that he paid? He was scourged. He was whipped. He was mocked. He was crucified. He deserved none of it. He lived the only sinless, perfect life that has ever been lived in the existence of this earth. The price Jesus paid to demonstrate his love was great. And I want you to think about this. With every lash of a whip and every sound of the crack of that whip and every time that a hammer hit a nail and drove those nails into the wrist and into the feet of Jesus Christ, what it was echoing and what Jesus was hearing over and over from the Father was, I love sinners. I love sinners and I have gone to this great length to bring sinners home to me. Now, how many of you would give the world to your children if you could? How many of you would give your children anything that uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you got grandchildren now and you think more about your grandchildren than you do your children. Is there anything, and we talk about this a lot on Wednesday evenings and, and Sunday evenings, is there anything you wouldn't give them if you could? Is there anything, we got you, brand new great-granddaughter, is there anything you wouldn't give her if you could? You had not stopped smiling in two weeks, have you? Listen, I have two knuckleheads for kids. But there is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's, there's nothing in this world that I wouldn't give them if it were in my power to give, to give it to them. There is nothing that I wouldn't help them with if there was some way that I thought that I could help them with it. I would give them the world if I could. But you know what God did? God did just the exact opposite. He gave His Son to the world. Think about that. He didn't send Jesus here. He didn't send His Son here to be born into a palace and to be born into riches and to say that I'm going to send you in such a magnificent way that there will be no opportunity, there will be no denial, there will be nothing that anyone, everyone will know when you come to this earth that this earth is yours, that this world is yours, that you created this, that it belongs to you, and that it is yours throughout eternity. That would, have been, that would have been what makes most sense to us. But what did God do? He gave His Son, not the world, but He gave His Son to the world. He gave His Son to the world in such a way that it was mysterious. But think about this old hymnal that we used to sing 
It says, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. At Calvary. That was the plan, the whole plan. And Paul says here that he loved us so much that even though we were sinners, even though we were undeserving, even though there was no point in our life where we would ever be good enough to earn or merit this from God, he says I sent, God sent him anyway. He sent him because we didn't deserve it and we couldn't earn it and we couldn't attain it on our own. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, that Paul prays that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. The breadth and length and height and depth. Think about this. If you're an Old Testament reader, if you've been in Sunday school for most of your life and, and you've read through the Old Testament or you've heard the stories of the Old Testament, when God, gave, when God gave Noah the plans for the ark that he was to build, did he just say, hey, Noah, go out here and gather up a, a, a little bit of wood and some tar and, and put a boat together because uh, sometime down the road I'm going to, it's going to rain and I need you to have a boat ready to, get, uh, to save creation. Is that the description he gave him of the boat he was to build? Go back and read the description of the ark that Noah was supposed to build and you will find out that that place of salvation was made intricately and that there was great detail and there was great, great planning and there was great measure taken and that Moses had a blueprint from God that was, it was, it was made so that nothing in it was left a chance. Go back and read the, about in, in Leviticus, there when God told Moses how to build the Ark of the Covenant with the, where, where God would inhabit and go and, and read the intricate detail of the Ark of the Covenant and the materials that were to be made and how they were to be made. And, and God left nothing there without detail. You want to read some detail, go into Leviticus and read the description of how God told Moses to build the tabernacle where the high priest would come and where God's spirit would dwell. I mean, down to, to what the hooks were supposed to be and how many stitches were supposed to be and, and the fabric and everything and the colors and how it was supposed to be. God, God gave great detail. And, but then it, it was so complex. But I want you to think about this here this morning. How complex was God's plan for us this morning? How complex was the plan that he gave to us? Paul says here that the plan was, it was not that complex that Jesus came, died a, lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, lived without sin, and that he went to a cross, and that that cross was so simple that it was two beams, and it involved three nails, and it was, 
it was all done for our sins. And so when we get to, when Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 3 that he wants us to have the, the mind to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of what Christ has done for us, all we need to understand is that we are a people with great sin in our lives and that Jesus came and gave himself on a cross at Calvary and that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How simple that is. But how deep and how loving and how immeasurable that love is for us this morning. And there is a point in our lives where God doesn't go into, He doesn't go into intricate detail and take us and walk us through all the theology of the Old Testament and bring us to a point to where He gets us to hear and it all Here's what God does in His great grace and mercy is He begins to speak to us through His Holy Spirit and say to us, you're a sinner and you need salvation. And He begins to say to us that my son Jesus came to this earth and that though you were a sinner, though you hadn't even been born yet, He came and He lived and he died your death for you so that you could live his life and live it throughout all eternity. That is the greatest exchange that has ever been made in this world. Jesus, righteousness and sinlessness exchanged for my sins. And now when God looks at me, he doesn't see me as he saw me before with great sin, but he looks at me through the blood of Jesus Christ and he says, he's mine. And he says, she's mine. And he's mine and, and on and on and on. And this morning, in this simple text that Paul gives to us as he writes to this church in Rome that he longs to be with so much he says, the main thing that I want you to know and understand is though you are a sinner, Christ died for you. Though you are lost and deep in your sins, Jesus has died for you so that you may have life with him throughout eternity. As Gordon comes this morning to get a time of invitation ready for us, I want to say to you this morning that that invitation, that message that Paul gave to those people there in Rome is still the message that he gives to this congregation sitting here in Piedmont, Alabama this morning or in Atlanta, Georgia or in Dallas, Texas or in Managua, Nicaragua this morning where there's so much unrest. God is still declaring through his word, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. Next Sunday, I'll have the great pleasure to baptize a young man who was sitting here a few weeks ago and who said, I'm a sinner and I need to know 
Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said you need Jesus. And he was obedient in that. This morning I want to extend that invitation. And I want to tell you that if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior. If there is something stirring in your heart this morning. That's God's Holy Spirit. And his, his, his one responsibility this morning is to point you to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I would beg you not to put that off another moment. I'll be here with scripture. I'll stand here. I'll take time to counsel with you and to pray with you. And to tell you how you can be free from those sins this morning. And know Christ throughout all eternity. And not just throughout all eternity. But walk with him through this life. Maybe you need to follow in believer's baptism. Maybe this is the church that you've been praying that you want to be a part of in the ministries of this church. Whatever your decision is, if you need a time of worship, reflection, if you just need to come and pray, whatever it is, would you use this time wisely as we stand. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of these verses that describe us as weak and sinners. And tell us that even though we are those people, Jesus died for us. Even though we didn't deserve it, Jesus gave his life for us. And I pray this morning that if there are those here who need to know Christ as Savior, that they would come and learn how they can experience that today. In any decision that needs to be made, and any prayer that needs to be prayed, Father, I pray that you would give us the freedom and liberty to do so. In Jesus' precious name, amen.